Hello, I am Jerry Maguire, the co-host of Parliamental, the podcast where I talk with Anne McLaughlin, the SNP MP for Glasgow Northeast. Hi, Anne. How are you? Hi, Jerry. I'm um, I'm good. I'm all right. You're good. We are in we're in your living room. I mean, you know this, Anne, because we're here. <laughs> but listeners, we are in Anne's living room just now, and the cat Tinkerbell's kicking about. So if you hear a cat-like noise, it's probably a cat. Or if you hear me shouting, "Stop it!" It'll be me telling her not to uh, scratch the yeah, leather sofa. Definitely the cat getting shouted at for that one. Um, but yeah, it's been a long time. What happened to us? What happened? Oh, who knows? <laughs> it's probably actually only been about a month. Yeah. But it just feels like... Um, and we were so full of what we were going to do in the recess with the podcast. <laughs> I had great plans. I've still got them. Yeah. But here we are. Recess is over. Back at Parliament. And uh, this is us just getting back it's into like, it. It's like what was happening in the summer holidays. Well, I have to say, when I was... The week before we went back, so two weeks ago, I had that. I had this feeling of deja vu and I was trying to work out, remember what it was. And what it was, was the feeling I used to get in week five of the school summer holidays when I only had a week left to do all the things I wanted to do. And I was quite traumatised. But yeah, I think life was slightly easier in those days. <laughs> but are you ready to get tore into podcasting? I am, yes. Cool. Let's do it. So I want to start this podcast with some labour chat. So just a few hours ago, Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party. Yay! So I was going to ask you what you think about it. Is that what you think about it? That's what I think about it. Yeah, no, I'm really happy. I um, Jeremy Corbyn has always worked really constructively with the SNP group down there, so that's a good thing. Um, secondly, you know, he's a man of principle. He's stuck to the Labour Party's founding principles, unlike the other three that were going for the leadership. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I'm never, ever going to be anything other than happy with people who do what they're not expected to do. Nobody expected Jeremy Corbyn to win, except, can I say, moi? <laughs> I, um, yeah, you did say it, yeah. Yep. <laughs> did I say it? Did I, I say I'm it sure we did. I'm sure, Alexandra, I'm sure Alexandra Park, the other day, yeah, the other day, a month well, ago. The other day, a month ago. Well, my, my partner, Graham, um, is a long-term friend of Jeremy's. Mm-hmm. He grew up in London and he mm-hmm. was in the Labour Party in Islington. And uh, so he got me to introduce myself to Jeremy on the first day, which I did. Um, and he's a fantastic guy and he's he's risen above the attempts to make him a figure of fun mm-hmm. because he's absolutely not. He's a really serious guy and I think he'll make a big difference to the Labour Party. And the, the important thing about that is it'll make a big difference to the people of England. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want them to have what we've got and that is some hope that there is a way forward that's different mm-hmm. to to that that the Tories mm-hmm. are giving us. I mean, in some ways, do you think um, what the SNP did at their election and the profile of Nicola Sturgeon, do you think that maybe helped kind of start the fire a wee bit that showed a, viol- a valid alternative? Oh, definitely, because I think um, before Nicola started really going on the attack on the austerity cuts and um, she didn't start going on the attack on Trident, she always has, mm-hmm but really made them big issues. I think people thought it was kind of maybe a wee bit sort of unrealistic to say we should be anti-austerity because there were no major political figures saying it. Um, so Nicola made it acceptable to say in actual fact we're not going to put mm. up with this. And also the other thing she did, or the, the party did, was made a lot of people in England a wee bit um, regretful that they didn't have 
the SNP. I mean, so many people were saying if only we had the SNP here, but it wasn't the SNP they needed because the SNP is about independence mm. for Scotland and creating a better Scotland. It was an alternative that also was anti-austerity and anti-trident, and they used to have that in the Labour Party. They don't have it now in the Labour Party, but let's see what happens in the next wee while. I, I really, really do hope it works out well for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's shown that they've got a bit of hope now. There's going to be a a main opposition party in England that's going to have a different opinion mm. to the pre to the previous uh, yeah. Labour Party, basically. Um, what do you think it'll mean for Scottish Labour? Because that'll be an interesting thing to see that the leadership's changed so much, and Scottish Labour, I think, have always sort of, in my opinion, you know, followed behind, and now yeah. their leadership's changed. So it'll be interesting to see how their messaging changes in Holyrood. It will, and I quite fully expect our MSPs to constantly remind. Uh, Kezia, Dugdale and the like when they're singing the praises of Jeremy Corbyn of all the other things that they said about him they were not exactly singing his praises but um, yeah I, I think to be honest for the Labour Party in Scotland it's going to be a long time before they can win back trust. I mean I actually am relaxed about them doing that once we're independent. <laughs> uh, in my mind um, it'll take such a long time that we will be independent by the time they've done it and then I don't mind mm -hmm. if they you know, are going to be a credible left of centre party with decent policies that are about people that have very little in supporting them. I'm not going to have a problem with it. If it means the SNP has to keep trying as hard as we have been, keep on our toes in terms of defending people mm -hmm. against cuts, for example, then I'm all for that. I would, I like that. I, I, I really have absolutely no issue, but I don't. I think the Labour Party in Scotland. If they were to suddenly turn around and say, oh, yeah, we're all big fans of Jeremy Corbyn, yeah, we're all anti-austerity, we're all this, that, and the next thing that they weren't a couple of weeks ago, I think the people of Scotland are so scunnered with them at the moment that they will see right through that and see that it's not genuine. It's just about getting votes. Um, and really, the Labour Party have to do more, takes more than words for mm. them to turn their fortunes around in Scotland. So leading on from that chat about Holyrood, um, you know, we've had our own mini-election recently. In the, in the Proven branch, where Ivan McKee's been selected to be the candidate for Proven SNP in 2016. Um, so Ivan McKee, SNP, MSP, that's a tongue twister, I think we're going <laughs> to hopefully be used to by next year. I mean, hopefully we'll get a chat with him or get an interview with him at some point yeah. in, the, in the podcast. Can you give us a quick pitch for Ivan? I'm really excited about Ivan winning it. We had nine really good candidates. We were very lucky um, and they really fought a tough campaign. But I'm very excited about Ivan getting it because... Ivan's somebody who um, has built up serious businesses. Um, he as far as I'm aware, he employs hundreds of people. He's now uh, handed the businesses over to his managers. He's now full-time on the campaign. But part of the reason why I'm so excited is one of the things I obviously want to do for this area is bring jobs to it. Mm -hmm. And he's somebody who really led in the referendum campaign on the economy and bringing jobs mm -hmm. uh, to Scotland. So I'm going to pick his brains. I think we'll work really well mm -hmm. together as a team. He knows industry better than I do, so I'm going to pick his brains and work with him on how we can bring more jobs to this constituency. So in that respect, uh, I'm really very excited about it. Um, but he's great. Um, he's very easy to work with. Um, 
he's very committed. And as I say, that's him full time on the campaign now. Mm -hmm. So if that's the rate he's going to work at before he gets elected, when he's getting paid not a penny, mm -hmm. I would imagine he'll do an incredible job when he is elected, if he's elected as an MP MSP. Yeah, I, I met him for, well, the second time last night. The first time I met him, he chat my door and I was yeah. in pink and brown shorts. So it was nice <laughs> to meet him yesterday, fully clothed. Oh, we talked about uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that another? But yeah, like you're saying, he's got he's got a great background, and um, I think he'd be really positive for this part of this part of Glasgow, really yeah. positive economic force, and about you know building us up. And that's not pretty. And cool. also, um, Ivan, although he's this you know senior businessman, and he's you know obviously done very well for himself, it's very clear that he's from a working class background, and he understands. He may not experience what a lot of ordinary people are going through right now, but he understands because he's been there. Mm -hmm. And there's no airs and graces about him. There shouldn't be anyway, and I wouldn't be very happy if, <laughs> if any of our candidates had mm -hmm. airs and graces about him, but there's none about him. He's naturally someone who just um, identifies with people, so that's that's good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what he's got to say when he starts campaigning for yeah. next May. Yeah, me too. But also on that selection thing, Hamza Yusuf's going to stand in Pollock, and mm -hmm. I didn't realise until this morning that that's against Joanne Lamont. Yeah. So that'll be a fun Barney. Uh, uh, actual election, sorry. It might not be so much fun for Joanne. No, no, I don't think it Humza's got some chat. Humza's got some chat. He's got great eyelashes. <laughs> he's he's, uh, he's very uh, charming and personable. He's a very smart guy. He's, you know, people referred to him from very early on as a rising star, a future star. And I would say I would be stunned if Humza, who is also working really hard to make sure he does win it, mm -hmm. didn't win, but I'm pretty sure he will win. So... Uh, unfortunately for Joanne Lamont, that's um, something she's just going to have to face up to, the possibility <laughs> of no longer being, th being there next year. But, you know, I kind of wonder about people like Joanne Lamont, if they, I mean, particularly her, when she resigned as leader, if they wouldn't really welcome the opportunity to just, you know, take a back seat yeah. from politics. It's a tough game, whatever mm -hmm. party you're in, it's really tough. Mm -hmm. And she's been doing it for years and years. And that's not me saying time to retire yourself mm -hmm. in. That's just me saying, you know, maybe it would do her good to go and do something else. Maybe she won't hate the idea yeah. of taking a break from politics, not necessarily forever, but um, I definitely think she's got a tough fight in her hands to keep that seat when mm -hmm. Hamza's a candidate. So, we're just back from the summer break. You were a very busy woman. What were you up to? What happened? Over the Why summer... Why didn't I hear from you for weeks? What was it? <laughs> I know, it's a really weird thing. I mean, my vision of recess, because when I'm down at Westminster, I come back up here and I'm working, and you, you're you working seven days a week. Mm. In between times, maybe popping down to see my mum on a Sunday for a couple of hours, but still working the Sunday morning, Sunday night, whatever. So my idea was I would work four days a week during recess, and I would work my backside off and then I'd have three days to do family things clean my house <laughs> maybe um, iron some clothes or something look after the the Tinkerbell who's just crawled up on my knee um, and it just didn't it didn't work out like that at all I mean first of all our temporary let on our temporary office was up and they wanted to let it out to somebody that was going to take it long term so um, we thought we had an office and um, we uh, we're told that we were too political after they accepted our offer. We were told we were too political. Um, and we said, we're not political, we're parliamentary, we're the, I'm the MP. Mm -hmm. No, sorry, you can't. So the board of the organisation, with three Labour councillors on it, I'm saying nothing about that, I'm mm -hmm. just mentioning nothing. it in passing. Just, yep. That board said it wasn't um, 
uh, it wasn't feasible for us to be in there. So everything suddenly got decanted into my hallway. And so for weeks and weeks, we had uh, boxes and paper and printers and laptops and stuff in the hallway. And we worked around my kitchen table. Um, and that wasn't good for anybody. It really wasn't. Uh, we ended up we've got a temporary office now in Port Dundas. Uh, that wasn't the only thing. It was just there were lots of organisations to visit, lots of people to meet, lots of visits to people at home who couldn't get out. And I don't know, time just ran away with itself. And I think I had I had two days where uh, I took my mum and my eight-year-old nephew, who was up from Manchester, out. And then I had one day in the house where I was supposed to not be working. And that was it. That was the summer. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. I need to plan better. I need to book time off in future and book in my podcasts. Yes, definitely that last one, I think, is the most important. <laughs> you attended an 1820 Martyrs event. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something I've heard you mention before and I didn't really know much about it. Could you give us a quick rundown of what that is? Yeah, basically the 1820 Martyrs were three men who I didn't realise until I was up there looking at the the kind of gravestone last week, that they were only in their late 20s and early 30s. Basically, bringing it into modern day, they were anti-cuts protesters and pro-independence supporters. So they were campaigning for that and also the right to vote. And they led um, big demonstrations um, and they, for their for their trouble, they got hung. Now, they didn't get hung, drawn and quartered because the crowd were so furious at them hanging them um, that it wasn't possible to draw and quarter them, apparently, so they were just hung. Yes. They then uh, were put in a pauper's grave, and it was only, I can't remember when it was, but I think it was sometime in the last uh, 100 years that they were allowed to take their bodies uh, from their pauper's grave and put them in Sight Hill Cemetery in this constituency. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were told they could do that as long as they did it in secret and in, in the dead of night. So even then it was like, uh, you know, we're ashamed of them, they have to get no publicity. Uh, so in my maiden speech, I had talked about them and I compared them to the tall puddle martyrs who were not hung, they were just deported to Australia. Um, I think I think I've got that right. Anyway, they uh, were pardoned and they they are rightly commemorated every year. Well, I want the eighteen twenty martyrs to get the same um, recognition. So uh, you know it matters because they were doing what so many people are doing now, fighting for independence and fighting against the cuts that affected the poorest people in society. And for that. You should be applauded. You shouldn't be hung. So I want them to get the applause that they deserve. So I'm definitely going to work on and getting them some sort of formal recognition. Mm. And also, um, I found out this morning that in the wake of the, of their execution, that um, that's when Glasgow got its first two proper MP member parliament seats in Westminster. So I suppose you're, right? you're part of the direct lineage back to Ooh. something that they did and they ended up with a kind of reforming of the parliamentary seats in Scotland. So yeah. I did not know that, but I'll tell you something. See, when I was at the commemoration, so the 1820 Society, a voluntary group, they they do a thing every year in Sight Hill Cemetery and um, they asked me if I would lead the procession and lay the wreath. And I was sort of laughing because I thought I felt a bit silly. So the piper went first, I was after him, then there was the banner and then everybody followed on up through the cemetery. And I giggled a wee bit because I felt a wee bit self-conscious about it. And then I found myself going, you know, sometimes they say that, you know, emotions, you know, extremes of emotions are quite similar. I started laughing and then I I felt quite emotional. Mm -hmm. And I thought it nearly turned into, you know, me crying. And I felt really 
I really felt quite emotional and I felt really honoured and I don't use that term lightly people always say I felt so honoured but I really suddenly felt really honoured you know that this had happened all those years ago nearly 200 years ago and I was being allowed to lay the wreath to honour these people um, you know who'd done so much and who if they looked around them now would be like oh we've not really moved on terribly Mm -hmm. far Um, so yeah I felt yeah it was quite it's quite nice so I didn't know that about the the, what you were saying about the Glasgow MPs, that's interesting. So, back to Westminster. If we must. <laughs> uh, well, you did. You, you must. You must have. Because you went back to Westminster I this did. week. And it did seem like you had a pretty busy week for your first week back. So, first of all, before we get into that, how was it going back? Um. Yeah, it was, uh, well, a wee bit like going back to school and seeing all your pals again. <laughs> Um, uh, dreading it a bit, having to sit opposite the Tories and, oh, I don't know, it was strange, it was really strange and suddenly I thought, oh, here I am, somebody's taking over my life again, I'm not in control of my mm-hmm. life anymore. But, you know, then I just got into it and you very soon just accept that that's what you're doing and make the most of it. One of the first things I saw was the in-out EU referendum purda. Is that for a mouthful? Um, victory where the government basically suffered a defeat they wanted to make changes to the, the purda rules. Which looks like they just wanted to make it available, like their platform as a soapbox for yeah. what they wanted in the EU. Um, so unlike them. Yeah, so unlike them. So uh, how? I mean, there's a, I looked at it. There seemed to be a few votes on it. How did that work? That defeat. That was the Monday, right? And on a Monday, we normally finish at ten or half ten, something like that. That was the night that we didn't finish till quarter to one in the morning. See, by the time we were, like, maybe we were at half past 11. Mm. But at that point, I was saying, I just want to go home. I can't mm-hmm. sit up straight anymore. Because I'd left the house at seven that morning, going straight there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, well, basically, what do you mean, how did it work? Well, I'm looking at the votes for it. It was quite interesting. It seemed to be, like, a series of votes around various amendments and stuff. And it seemed designed to be hard to understand. Yeah. For me, looking at it, it was difficult for me to go through and think, right, how did those votes work? There was like four votes that seemed to go for the same issue. So it sounds like it was actually that painful an experience then. That, me was. reading that later on, it was actually that painful in the house. It really was. And um, See, if I was to explain it to you, I'd have to go and look at it again. Oh, and, no. But yeah, as I say, it was just such a long day mm-hmm. that by the end of it, I, I thought, what am I voting on? And the first speech I think you made was on the um, refugee crisis. You spoke in the debate about the ongoing crisis in the Mediterranean. And you gave like what, what I thought was a really powerful real example about a Kurdish woman yeah. you know, in, you know, in Glasgow. Could you tell us a wee bit about that? Yeah, but I can't guarantee to uh, hold myself together when I tell you about it. I've, I've just come from three hours of surgeries where I've heard some horrific stories and so I'm kind of on a bit of a downer. So mm-hmm. if I start telling you about this, be warned, I may be in floods of tears. <laughs> and if I'm not, people listening might be. Well, basically, um, it's a woman I know. I know her son pretty well. Um, and uh, I've only... She doesn't She doesn't speak much English. So whenever I meet her with him, she just smiles and nods and says the odd thing. She's a lovely woman. Um, and... I always look at her and think you would never, now that I know what happened to her in the past, I always look at her and think you would never dream that that small, petite Kurdish woman walking along the road, blending into the crowd, just going about her business and smiling happily at everybody. You would never dream what had gone on in her, her life. But I went to um, Kurdistan with uh, Bob Doris, who's one of the MSPs, um, and with um, her son, 
I'm just not going to name him because I'm not mm-hmm. sure if he would want me to. He'd probably be okay with it, but I've not asked him. So we went and I obviously I met all of her family and she's done an incredible job. She's got all these kids and she's brought them up and they're all doing really well and all the rest of it. But we went to visit the museum that they've turned Saddam Hussein's old headquarters into. It's now a museum. And basically, um, you go from room to room and there are all these torture chambers. Mm. Um, and it's where um, his mother um, was tortured for years. Um, and they have images on the wall showing you the types of torture. that, And it's horrific. And it's something that if it happened to me for three minutes... I would be out of my mind, but she put up with this for a long, long time. Her brother was also in the same one, and I think I'm right in saying he was killed in there. And they don't wipe the blood. The blood stains are still there because they don't want to wipe away the blood of all those people who suffered. So it was just pretty horrendous realising. It was horrendous for him to be there knowing this is where it happened to his mother. I heard so many other horrific things that happened under Saddam Hussein's regime and you know and the point I was making in that debate was there are so many people now and it's great and they're saying you know people who previously didn't have much knowledge of refugees or what they'd been through and they're saying we must help people and they're right we must but the point I was making was we already have thousands of refugees here in Glasgow here in Scotland here in the UK and, you know, if you think, you know, what they're going through, the, the ones that are coming over on these boats, what they've, many of these ones that are here living among us have been through, just because you can't see it and just because you don't hear about it, don't underestimate the horrors that they've faced in their lives. And I was just really ple- pleading for people to show the same level of understanding and the same level of compassion to those people. Because, I mean, I know... I know people who've come here as asylum seekers. I've worked alongside them and they've volunteered for the organisation I was working for. I'll give you one example. It was somebody I never got on with. Did not like him at all. He didn't like me. We got on on a kind of professional level, but we just never liked each other. And then one day I asked him how he ended up here. And he told me the journey that he made. I've never heard, I've never seen a film that was as fanciful as this and I sat and I listened and I thought right you get on my nerves but in actual fact I've got a newfound respect for you and it never would have occurred to me but I think I just saw this irritating person whereas yes he was irritating (laughs) he's still irritating I still irritate him but underneath that you've got to remember that if somebody's come here as an asylum seeker the chances are they've been through something as horrendous as all the people that we now want to welcome into the country so let's just remember that the next time you know you don't have time for somebody who is is already Mm. here living as an asylum seeker a refugee it seems like um there's like a, a spreading of that opinion that people have about you know feckless benefits claimants that kind of heartless tory ideal and that you're saying these new asylum seekers um, refugees coming in that people are fighting to try and give them some sympathy and some empathy but it's almost like if you're here just now you Mm -hmm. are a you're a you're a feckless benefit claimant and that's people are tarred with that brush and it seems like there's going to be a little bit of humanity given to these people just now Mm -hmm. but let's not let's not forget everyone that's here already yeah and still living with those memories of what happened to them before they got here. And sometimes, 
living with the memories of what happened after they got here. For example, people who were then detained, women who'd suffered sexual abuse in their country of origin, come here, get detained, and male guards are looking after them and they're absolutely terrified. So sometimes the horrific memories they've got are memories that have been created here in this country. Mm. I mean, that leads on then, I suppose, to what you're talking about at a different debate the next day about Dungavel. Mm. And um, you, meant, you mentioned a story, I, I maybe don't want to go into it too much because it's, it's a pretty sad story, but mm. in Yarl's in, um, <laughs> Wood about a, a mother and child, and it was pretty mm. pretty grim too, pretty sad to hear. Mm. Um, but just talking talk about, you know, these are these are real people, these aren't numbers, and, and we're all real people. You know, it's not just mm. everyone who's a, everyone is in a, of a crappy situation needs compassion and humanity, and that, that seems to be kind of dry at the minute. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it seems to be dry among some politicians, mm-hmm. but. Um, if you look, I mean, today we're going to head to George Square shortly and today there are thousands of people there holding a vigil for asylum seekers, uh, making their way over here or hoping to make their way over here. In London, my partner's down in London at the moment and he's telling me he reckons, this is his estimate, there's 200,000 people out in the streets there. Oh. So compassion is coming back in a big mm-hmm. way. It's just, you know, let's not focus it all in the one place. Let's keep some of it for people here. The thing about detention, you're right, I don't I don't want to talk, I don't want to, because I will end up in floods of tears, but I would just say to anybody, if they want to know what I'm, to, what we're talking about that we just don't want to go into <laughs> now, go, it was, uh, was it Thursday? Thursday afternoon that I was speaking in the debate on detention of asylum seekers. Go and listen to that. Um, it's a story about a child and it's pretty awful, but um, just as an update, because a few people have asked me, that child is okay now. That child got out of Yarlswood and um, yeah, I don't want to say any more because they won't want me to, mm-hmm. but that child's fine now. This week saw the defeat of the assisted dying bill in England and Wales at the same time as the government confirmed that two UK nationals were killed in a drone strike in Syria. I think that's really weird. <laughs> that on one hand, you're not allowed to, to die with dignity of your own yeah. choosing, but on the other hand, the government can sort of get you from above, yeah, yeah, in a different country. Do you think that's a weird coincidence, or is it just me? Yeah, it's a bit strange, isn't it? Well, I suppose, though, I think it was a free vote on the assisted dying thing. It wasn't party policy in any of the parties. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it does seem a bit strange that they're saying, you know, life is so precious that even those people who want to die should not be allowed um, to to choose mm-hmm. to die. And there you've got two British nationals who um, weren't afforded a trial mm-hmm. and were executed yep. um, by the RAF drones. And uh, I, I, it's a bit of an odd one. Because yeah. mm. there's something about, I think, and again, I'm not a lawyer, so this could be utter mints. But there seems to be a sort of, in certain circumstances, that droning is permitted, those, sort, those sorts of attacks are permitted, and there has to be a sort of clear, imminent threat from individuals. Now, I'm not saying two guys who've joined you know, a militia in Syria, if that's what they've done, were a barrel of laughs, but yeah. two guys in Syria, I don't think is an immediate threat to us right now. What uh, David Cameron seemed to be saying in the House of Commons when he made the statement, and I don't know why he made the statement in conjunction with the statement about the refugee crisis, but nonetheless, Mm. uh, or maybe I do know why he did it, um, when he made the statement, he seemed to be saying that these two were plotting an imminent attack on the British mainland and they had to take them out to stop this imminent attack. Well... 
I think we need more detail, to yeah. be perfectly honest. The legal thing, I think they asked the Attorney General, I could have this wrong, but there was something about that and the Attorney General said that it was, it was acceptable under uh, the law. I think under the law, everybody should have the right to put their case. And um, I, do you know the thing that sickened me more than anything about it was the next day um, a newspaper, a daily newspaper that I'm not going to name because I can hardly bear to say their name, but they're not the moon. The newspaper that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't buy had uh, a picture of the two young men uh, who, let's remember, their families live here. Uh, a picture of the two young men with the headline, uh, Wham, Bam, Thank You, Cam. And I have not been so disgusted since the same newspaper had those, the other headline about the truth at Ree Hillsborough and uh, Gotcha when we sunk the Belgrano. Mm-hmm. I was sickened by that. You know, those... Uh, boys have got families and friends and and wham, bam, thank you, Cam. Disgusting. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've read what uh, emails that apparently came from those boys. It didn't make pleasant reading. They certainly didn't, you know, seem to me like somebody whose company would want to keep. Um, it made me feel quite angry reading their emails. But that's, you know, when has that ever been, you know... A reason to to end somebody's life, uh, particularly as you say, if we're saying that life is so precious that nobody can choose to do it themselves. And I'm not saying that at the end of the day they didn't have enough evidence, but we haven't seen that evidence. Mm-hmm. So I feel really, really uncomfortable about what happened there. Yeah, we're talking about guilt, about whether people were, were guilty and, and some mm-hmm. action should have been taken, mm-hmm. but we don't know. We don't know if those people had been plotting for want of a better word or were sort of you know based here we wouldn't be happy that we would hear overnight that there was mm-hmm. a there was a sort of targeted attack yeah. in Birmingham to, to kill two men we wouldn't accept exactly. it here and so just because exactly. abroad does that make it okay and we don't have the death penalty in this country so um that's certainly not what you should be aiming for but you know I mean I see that part of the law that says imminent threat is if they're standing there ready to chuck the bombs at you you mm. know it was horrible sitting listening to that. And, you know, we will be pressing, and we won't be the only ones, we'll be pressing for more information about that. I think Parliament's got the right to know, the country's got the right to know. Um, because, I mean, our government speaks out, not enough, but speaks out against other governments who execute or jail people without giving them a trial, and that's just exactly what they've just done. Mm-hmm. Seems like a bit of bravado that's sort of backfired. That sort of plot was going to sound like a kind of macho, you know, we've done this, and actually, when you start to pick it apart, it's pretty grim. I don't. I mean, I'm not sure. I've not really been out of the bubble of Westminster long enough this week to pick up on what the public opinion is on this. I also hear people, people who are very cynical by nature, saying, "Is this, is this them building up to taking us into war?" Um, and that that House of Commons is going to be chaotic if that's what they're going to try and do. And I've checked the members' register of interests for your page, <laughs> and you didn't mention this. Um, I've spotted that you've been doing a bit of moonlighting, a bit of cash in hand, a wee homer, 
and you were on the Sunday Post Politics podcast. And oh, I'm sorry. Like I feel like I, like I feel like I've been cheated on. You know? But I did mention to the Sunday Post that that we do a podcast. Brilliant. That's okay then. Um, but you know, um, as as I was listening to the podcast and then read the story attached, to it, it was quite interesting that the story that the podcast was wrapped around was senior SNP senior. Oh, SNP MP claims Scotland will be independent within 10 years so I mean I was floored I, mean, yeah. I had to pick myself up off the ground that this SNP MP wanted independence in the next 10 years um, do you want to explain yourself to the listeners well, well I did it so that I could get the breaking news on the BBC <laughs> I mean I know I, I, I was kind of thinking have I really said something that that different to what anybody else says and obviously I haven't you know imagine that the SNP want independence and mm. intend to get it intend to have another referendum at some point I mean I was asked when I think it will happen I hope it happens sooner but um, that doesn't mean I want a referendum imminently I want the referendum when people are ready for it when people tell us they want it and you know, they say, well, do you know, somebody said to me the other day, do you know, how would you know? Would you not have to have a referendum to ask if people want a referendum? <laughs> and um, But you do know, you do know, you can feel the groundswell of opinion, you can feel the mood changing in the country, and you do learn to judge these things. And it will be a judgment call. Um, probably not my judgment call, probably more like Nicola's judgment call. But, you know, yeah, okay, big deal. We want independence and we'd like it quite quickly, please. Um, you know, hardly worthy of a headline. No. So, Anne, you're going back to Westminster tomorrow? Monday. Monday. And what, what's coming up with you in the next week or two? Well, I had decided I wasn't going to speak in any more debates this week because I spoke in two last week. And when you speak in a debate, you have to be in... For, like, I was in for six and a half hours in the chamber on those green benches the other day. So uh, this week the Trade Union Bill is getting its second reading, I think, and I'm going to, rather than speak in the debate, I'm going to go in and make some interventions. You don't need to stay in all day if you do that. Um, on Tuesday, now you have a thing in Westminster where there are debates in the debating chamber, the normal place that you see the green benches, and there's debates in Westminster Hall, and there's about five of them a day, and that's any Member of Parliament can put in a bid to have their own debate. There's a ballot, and if you get your name taken out of the hat. So somebody has got a debate on the rights of Tamils in Sri Lanka, and there needs to be an official person to sum up for the Labour Party and an official person to sum up for the SNP. So I'm doing the summing up for the SNP because I used to live in Sri Lanka, and I've been back several times and took a real interest in, in the difficulties faced by Tamils. So I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Sounds like another busy week. You're just all over Hansard. Well, I know. I mean, I had my maiden speech probably the week before uh, recess. So I wasn't able to speak before then, but now I'm just never shut up. So, Anne, that brings us to the end of another episode of Parliamental. No. I know. No, series two. What do we call it? Second, I don't know. Term two. Term two, that's a good one, <laughs> term two. Anyway, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can contact us on Twitter at ParlamentalPod, on Facebook, search for Parliamental, and via email at parliamentalpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. Um, Anne and I will return in a fortnight, definitely this time. Definitely. Definitely yeah, this time yeah. in a fortnight-ish, definitely a fortnight. Ish. <laughs> um, but anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye from Tinkerbell.